Our scripture this morning is Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. The flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in numbers than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What, did, uh, what I did not steal must I now restore? O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O oh Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O oh God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors here. Sojourn, uh, the name reminds us that this place is not our home, that uh, the world is a place that we are in it but in Christ no longer of it. And as those who are no longer uh, of the world, we are to be equipped by God's word and sent out into it uh, to love and serve it for the Lord's glory. And as we do that, we need God's word for this. Um, sometimes in, this morning, if you put that prayer up there, we recite prayers together. This is not just to get into the motions of prayer, but to join prayer together, and we join in a much longer line of people that have prayed these prayers before us. So 
so that we can join not only their, their voices, but remember the faithfulness to our God who has been faithful to answer these prayers across history. So pray these underlined portions uh, together. Father, what we know not, what we have not, what we are not, for the sake of your Son, our Savior. Amen. I heard a missionary say one time that he was prepared to go out and be a sheep among sheep and not a sheep among wolves. There can often be a difference between life with God that's described to us and what we experience in real life. I mean, have you had that experience yourself where you had this like, kind of cookie-cutter picture of God and the Christian life and how things are going to go, and then you run into life like you just hit a brick wall, and it seems completely disjointed from what was put before you. I think maybe that was perhaps some of the, what that missionary felt when he says, I was prepared as a sheep among sheep, but I went out as a sheep among wolves, and it was hard to get ready for. And there can be a difference in what's described to us versus what's real, but it doesn't have to be that way. And here's how we can avoid that being reality is that we can just read the Bible. And that sounds simple, but I think it's exactly true because in the scripture, what we have is a very real picture of reality, a real picture of our God and the life lived under his good reign and good rule. He, he's not pulling any punches as if we're going to be surprised. It's a picture of reality in front of us. And, and one of the places that, that shows us how to be a, a people of God, the, a sheep among wolves, as the world really is, is the Psalms. This is one of the places where God equips His people to know how to live and sing and pray and live life as sheep among wolves. And in the Psalms are prayers and songs, there's songs of praise and hope, Psalms of confidence, psalms of fear, psalms of despair, psalms of lament, psalms of future hope and present trouble all over the place. In other words, this book equips us with prayers and songs for the actual life that we are to live before the Lord. And Psalm 69 gives us a very real, vulnerable psalms with raw words from David as he's overwhelmed. And how do you pray, how do you sing when you're overwhelmed? When you feel as if you're drowning, you can't get your feet underneath you in life. How do you pray and sing in the midst of that? And Psalm 69 shows us that. This is a psalm that, that moves like so many psalms do, and the psalms as a whole do, from, from something really difficult, despair and overwhelming uh, situations and circumstances, drowning to praise. You see that? Did you feel that as we read the word and heard that together that we moved from something that seemed like it was overwhelming and in the end we're celebrating? How do you move from that? How do you move from being in this place of overwhelming despair to being drowning to praise? That's what Psalm 69 does for you. You, you pray like Psalm 69. This is a prayer that, that goes from this revealing honesty, moves toward glow, growing clarity, a, addressing enemies, and then praising God. So first 12 verses, here's some revealing honesty. Look at verse 1 of Psalm 69. Save me, O God. There's some raw honesty prayed there. And at times, let's just know that some of the only words that can come out of our mouths are save me, help me. Sometimes that's all one can muster, and let's just note that that's a good start. Maybe you feel like you're drowning this morning, like you are overwhelmed with despair this morning. It could be sickness, it could be the kids, it could be your job, it could be suffering, it could be any number of things. You just feel like you're drowning. This is a great place to start. Just save me, God. Help me. The notice that these words are directed. Save me, O oh God. Help, save, deliver. They're, they're only a good start. Those are only good starting words if they connect you to one that can actually help you, that can actually deliver you, that can actually save you. David, he's overwhelmed. That's going to become more and more obvious as we go through here. He feels as if he's drowning. And where does he go with that? He goes to the Lord for help because he knows that this is a God who can actually save him, who can help him, who can deliver him. He, he knows of God's rescue. And so is he going to speak in, in terms of, of water? The waters, they've come up to my neck. And yet he knows of a God who rescued through the flood. You remember Noah? The floods came up, but God had saved and delivered his man when everything else was drowning. 
He, he knows of this God who'd saved Israel at the Red Sea when the waters came up, but not over them because God had delivered them through the sea and the waters came up over their enemies. He knows of this God and how he can save. He, he told uh, others, he says, I remember when I was a shepherd, God saved me from a bear. That was kind of overwhelming, but he did it. And he saved me from a lion. That was overwhelming. I felt like I was drowning. How am I going to snatch a lamb from a lion's mouth? But he did it. He delivered me and he can certainly deliver me again. And that's the God he goes to for help. He goes to him for help when he faces Goliath, right? He, he goes, here's an overwhelming situation. Here's a, a place where you'd be drowning in your own blood if you approach this wrongly. This is this champion, this mighty man, Goliath. And he goes up to him and he knows this God, how he's delivered. And so in the midst of that, he can go and say, save me, O God. Because he knows who he's talking about. It's important for God's people to know and remember who this God is and what he has done. So that when they're overwhelmed, so that when they feel like they're drowning, they know where they can go to help. They know who they can ask. They know what they can cry out, and they know who they can cry out to. God, save me. Do you know this God and what he's done? You, do you, could you recall some of these things so that when you're overwhelmed, you don't just say, help. You say, help me, God. <laughs> save me, God. David could come to God because God had rescued him multiple times. Bear, lion, giant Goliath. We can come to him with the same kind of knowledge. We weren't rescued from the giant Goliath, but an even greater giant of sin and death. And God's champion went out and he slew that giant for us so that we can know that when we cry out, save me, O God, that we have a God that can do that. So if you find yourself in the place of verse 1, there, there's one place that you should take that prayer to. You should take it to God. So if you're overwhelmed, if you feel as if you're drowning, start with verse 1, save me, oh God. Now David, that's where he's at. Distress, despair, he's overwhelmed, and there's a sense of urgency and, and where you have to know that when we come to this, this is a man who's not easily rattled, right? He, he, he'd been through uh, lots of battles. He'd gone from the bear and the lion and Goliath. He's been to a lot of places, done a lot of things. This is not one who's easily rattled. And yet here we have him at the beginning, completely overwhelmed, feeling as if he's drowning. Now, what is going on here? We look back to the superscription of Psalm 69. It says, to the choir master according to the lilies of David. So we have no hints about any sort of situation or, or context going on. It gives no clues for where David finds himself during Psalm 69. Perhaps he, he is speaking from this place of Absalom, his son's revolt, where he wants to take over the kingdom. This is in 2 Samuel 15. Or he, he basically ousts David and all those who are loyal and faithful to David and sets himself up as the king. Perhaps it's a few chapters later in 2 Samuel and Sheba's rebellion when, when he revolts against David and tries to kick him out as king again. These are a couple places where there's great turmoil within David's own heart, surely, and within his kingdom where it seems like things are tottering, like maybe I might be swept over by this flood. I'm not so sure anymore. But whatever it is has left David feeling as if he's drowning. He says, the waters have come up to my neck. In verse 2, I sink in deep mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. He feels as if he's sinking with no foothold. You ever felt that way? Like you're trying to get your foot on something solid and you can't find it. That's where he's at. Or, or he says this, this flood water. Floods go over us and they don't even know that we're there. They just keep on going. That's what he says it feels like at this moment. No regard for his life. He's overwhelmed. He's desperate. And, and listen to this. It's not for lack of crying out for help. Verse 3. I'm weary with my crying out. My, my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. He's weary, parched, his eyes are dim. These are no half-hearted words. These are words that don't speak of half-hearted efforts in his life. He takes his save, deliver to God. But apparently it's not answered right away. Or, or maybe in the way that he wanted it to be answered. He doesn't feel as if this deliverance has come. He's still overwhelmed. And, and all of this is going on and he still hasn't told us a word about what the situation is. We don't know what makes it feel like he's drowning. We have no idea what it looks like for him to have some sort of circumstance that's going on. He just is dumping out his raw emotions here. There's distress, there's confusion, there's questions, but there is absolutely no description at this point of what's causing this. And at times, that's all we can do. He's so overwhelmed feels if the waters have come up so far over us and we have no footing that all we can do is save me, oh God. I feel like I'm crying out and I just I'm, I want your deliverance. You've got to give it now without any sense of the circumstance or setting at all. Maybe he doesn't even have that clarity in his own mind. 
He's just dumping out what's actually there, how he's experiencing things. This is how the Psalms lead us to pray. Psalm 62 verse 8 says, pour out your heart before him. And that's what David is doing before he even describes anything that's going on. He just pours out his heart and it's overwhelmed. This is how the Psalms lead us to pray. Poured out emotions and feelings and all that's going on just poured out in words to God. And notice that as it's in the scripture, God's not turned away by this. He's not rebuking David for this. How dare you bring your raw emotions and feelings to me? He instead invites it. And so if we have hearts that are full of desperation, here's what he says, pour out your heart to God. And turn it over to him. The, the lack of description of the circumstances and the setting and what's going on here actually are really kind to us because they give room for whatever our drowning is. It's not specifically given here. Whatever your drowning is can fit into these verses. Amen. And God invites us in those places, whatever that drowning is, whether it's as tough or as hard as David's drowning or as weak, you know, like what, it doesn't matter. Whatever that drowning is, you get to pour out your heart to God. And you can know that this is a God you can tell these things to. He invites this. Pour out your heart to God. Now, it's not until verse 4 that David gives us some sense, some description of what the situation is. He says in verse 4, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? So verse 4 gives us a sense that he's got lots of enemies. And they want his demise. They're, they're working for his downfall. They're working for his destruction. He has drowning going on and enemies. And when you have those things, like it can lead to this black hole of self-absorption, of self-pity, of being almost blind to who you are and what you're like, to being just a, a place of perpetual victimhood. But I want us to notice that David doesn't go in that direction. Verse 5, Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. With all that's going on in David's life, with feeling drowning like he's drowning and having these enemies that are after his demise, still notice what happens here. He, he is aware of his own sin. He, he's not blind to who he is and what he has done. He has some awareness of his own sin. He has an awareness of its impact on him and on others. He has a, a desire and an outward looking eye toward others. In other words, he cares for them even in the midst of this situation. He's not just looking to himself. He's looking to others. He's, he's not being self-seeking here. And we know that when you get into the midst of something that feels overwhelming, that feels like you're drowning, you're in great despair, that it's all too easy to, to, in the midst of that, to be sucked into this black hole of the self, to be completely self-absorbed, to be full of self-pity, and to lack no self-awareness of our own sin and part in this problem, and have no idea about others in the situation, and be really myopic in our vision. And David isn't going in that direction. He's actually moving Godward, which is... Selfward and Godward are going to be in opposite directions if we're talking about our normal sinful self. He, he's moving Godward and he's taking all of these things to the Lord. And so we've moved from verse 1, save me, O God, to verse 6. And the movement is interesting because in verse 1 he says, save me, O God, to verse 6. Notice what he starts adding on here. He, he's building some things. O Lord God of hosts, verse 6. And the end of verse 6, oh, oh God of Israel. Well, those, are, those are more meaningful than just this general God that he speaks of. He's surely talking to the one true living God in verse 1. But, but notice how he's built on that now. He's added to that. He's moving in a Godward direction. He's starting to think, all right, this is not just God. This is the God of hosts. And this is not just the God of hosts, this is the God of Israel. He's made some promises and connections here. He's moving in a Godward direction. And that movement, while we think like now comes the relief, right? You're starting to figure it out, David. And so we have almost like prosperity thinking in the way we read stuff. And like, you're moving in a good direction. Surely good things are going to come. But less suffering is going to happen. But that's not what happens here. Verse 7, he says, It's for your sake that I've borne reproach. The dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. 
When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. And when I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and of drunkards. They're making songs about me. David says, my life, my drowning, my despair, all these things are going on. It wasn't because my life wasn't the right, lived the right way. I was living my life for the, for the Lord, for the, for the Lord's sake. He says, zeal for your house, for your, for your worship, for your presence has consumed me. Like he has spiritual disciplines that are in place, a spiritual fervency. He's, he's praying, he's fasting, he's living for the Lord. And he says, all of that has been really costly. All of that has led him to this place where he has many enemies who seek to destroy him, seek his demise. All of that has led to him this place of estrangement from his family and closest uh, uh, people within his life. All of that has led him to this place where those who are of no regard and those who have high regard have very little regard for David. He feels alienated and alone. And he's just pouring this out to God. He feels estranged and overwhelmed, targeted and isolated on all sides. And that's what he's pouring out to God. So here's the, this revealing honesty of verses 1 through 12. It's pretty stark. He's pretty raw. And with all that going on, what's he still doing? Verses 1 through 12. Let's not miss the very thing that he's doing in these verses. He's praying. He's directing it. He's taking it all to God. He's moving Godward even by moving from verse 1, God, to this Lord, who God of hosts, and this God of Israel. He's remembering who God is as he pours out his heart to God. And as he makes his request, he's rehearsing who this God is. This is not just God. This is the God of hosts. This is not just God. This is the Lord of Israel. These things are often revealed, and so he knows them. Like He's not making this up. He's, he's seen these things in his word. He's the Psalm 1 man, or at least in that vein of one who says, I'm going to take my delight in the law of the Lord, who has revealed himself as this God, who's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of Israel. And so it's not a secret, and those phrases themselves are not necessarily particularly deep, but he's remembering them, and he's rehearsing them, and he knows who this God is and he keeps going further down into it he's moving Godward and remembering who God is in the midst of something overwhelming in the midst of our despair and where we feel as if we're drowning we're isolated we're estranged and alienated all those things is going to be vital parts of the Christian life like those things remembering who God is in the midst of our drowning is part of the war we, we say that theology is a war plan so theology, knowing who God is and who we are in light of who he is, is vital for the Christian life, vital for Christian living. It's not just some rusty or dusty books on the shelf. That's theology. No, theology is practical living if we're living in a world that we are made in the image of God and it is God's world. Theology matters. And the war plan in the midst of this Christian life that's full of sin in and outside of us means we're going to need to know who this God is and who we are in light of him. Remember David... He has this working theology here that he's praying out loud to us. David, he has this theology that goes with him when he, when he goes to Goliath. He says, this is 1 Samuel 17, 45, you, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of what? Lord of hosts. He knows God is not just God. He's the Lord of hosts. And God delivered him from the giants. He, he, he goes to this God, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and this is the God who made a covenant with David. When David wants to do something for God, God comes to him and says, I'm actually going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make you a few promises. And, and listen to the ways that God speaks to him through his prophet Nathan. He says, chapter 7, verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, there it is again, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. Skip down to verses 26 and 27. Notice the language again. These are things revealed to David, known to David, perhaps as in Psalm 69 as he's praying these things. He's remembering, he's going back to who he knows God to be. He says, and your name will be magnified forever, saying this is David speaking to God now. The Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established forever. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant. 
Maybe he's recalling these very things because he knows this God. So in the midst of his drowning, his theology is at work. He is living it out. So he's praying it out to this God. But not just any God. This is the one I know is the Lord of hosts. This is the one I know is the Lord of Israel. And in the midst of his drowning, he turns to him. He, he didn't think of his theology as a book or a course to take. But he knew who this God was. And he starts praying and living in light of that. Most of the time, I don't hear a lot of complaints or praises or requests of the president of Peru. But probably because we, I mean, I don't know who he is. I actually don't even know if it's called a president. I just made that up. On the... You know why? Because we, we don't have, he don't, um, if it's, let's just pretend that it's the president of Peru. Uh, no, no jurisdiction here, right? This is not a place. We, our requests and our complaints don't rightly go to this person. No power. And we don't know who this person is. You know, we will never do that, but man, when there's a problem, we'll go to one that we know, and we know that can help us, like our, our children, when they, when they have an issue, they're, they're not probably going to cry out for one of you, they're going to cry out, unless they're your kids, they're going to cry out for mom or dad, they're going to cry out to one that can help them, there's probably some disgruntled kids in the nursery right now that are like, they're crying out, maybe they are suffering in some way, some minor way, and they're crying out, and they're not being comforted in the way they want, because mom and dad aren't there right now, and they don't know this person that's down there with them as well. And David, when he's crying out, he's crying out to a God who's been revealed to him who he knows. His theology is part of his war plan. It's at work in his life. Right theology matters in the midst of our lives. Where it, There are going to be times when it feels as if we're drowning. He knew this God, and we can know this God too, right? He's revealed himself to us. The theology in the midst of a, the drowning and, and feeling overwhelmed is vital. We can remember who this God is as revealed to him, and we can turn to him in the midst of it. Right theology moves us in the right direction. And David, he goes with this theology, who God is. He goes with his urgent request to this God. And listen to verse 13. It says, this is moving from, now we've gone from this revealing honesty to a little bit more growing clarity as the prayer has moved on. We've moved from, le- from general to more specific, and this is what he's going to keep doing. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord... At an acceptable time, O oh God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. So David, in a time of trouble, in a time of despair, when he feels isolated and alone, and all that's going on in the midst of that, he, he looks forward to something different, something better. In that acceptable time, God, why don't you answer me? And another way to, to translate that word acceptable is favorable time. It's translated, that same word is translated that same way in other places. And so he's... In the midst of his despair, he's looking forward to a time of favor, a time of acceptance before the Lord. He, he knows that his trouble, whatever it is that he's going through, the enemies on every side feeling isolated and alone, he knows that his trouble is not going to have the final say. Why? Because he knows that God's favor is going to have a turn in this. Amen. And that God's favor is going to have a say. Amen. Now, why does he know that? Because of what? God's character. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. He makes his requests based on the known character of his God. Like, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. He knows this to be true of God, and so he makes his requests based on that. And in light of that, he makes some really big requests. Look at verse 14. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O God, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress and make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. We've moved already from this just revealing honesty to a lot more specific in his request before this God here in verses uh, uh, 13 through 18. And as it will continue as we go along. And here he makes some really big requests, really big ask. Answer me, he says multiple times. Deliver me. Turn your face toward me. Hide not your face from me. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to me. Redeem me. Ransom me. These are big asks for a 
an intense situation in David's life. Deliver me and be near me. He, he wants deliverance and he wants God's presence. Re- redeem me and be present with me. He asks for both and he does it both based on the character of God as revealed to him. Remember uh, uh, Exodus chapter 34, who's the Lord? The Lord, the Lord. He's a God who's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding in mercy. He's this Lord who's forgiving. He knows this of his God. And because this is his God, the one who abounds in love, who abounds in mercy, who is full of goodness, he can say, I want you to answer me out of that. I want you to bring me your deliverance and and still be with me. Be present. He asked for both. And both are good and right requests for this God. His prayer for deliverance and God's presence are requests that will never outstrip God's power. They will never outpace God's love. In in the midst of a concentration camp in Ravensbrück, Germany, you've heard of the the Ten Boom sisters. There was Corey Ten Boom and Betsy Ten Boom. And and one day they they have this account that Corey tells of, of how she was just bemoaning her situation, and who could blame her, right? I mean, what an atrocity. And, and as she's doing this, she basically is saying, this place is, is like the, the pit of hell. Do you remember Betsy's memorable response? Surely you've heard this quote at some point or another. It's often given to Corey Ten Boom, and she said it over and over again, but she heard it first from her, sis, her sister Betsy, that there's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And that is what David is counting on in this prayer. That all this overwhelming stuff is going on, I feel as if I'm drowning, but I'm remembering and I'm asking for that acceptable time, that favorable time for you to answer me because I know you to be a God who's abounding in love, abounding in mercy, full of goodness. And so I'm, I'm making some really big requests, but I know they're not too deep for your love. Your love will be deeper still. And church, that's how we can pray. That is how we should pray. That's based on God's character. He, he doesn't come and say, you know what, God, I've been pretty good lately. And my enemies still hate me, so please answer me and deliver me. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say my works have kind of been, you know, like, you know, if we weigh them, they're, they're pretty close to outweighing the bad. So why don't you answer me? He doesn't say my character is in general pretty good. He says, God, you're abounding in love, so please answer me. And we can pray that same way. If we pray like this, we, we're going to find that in our sickness and in our health, in our being a prisoner or being free, drowning or or on dry land, in life or death, no matter what's going on, God's love will be deeper still. We're going to find that our request could never outstrip His power, never outrun His love, never outpace His mercy, never outdistance His goodness. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20? He says this, we're going to ask him to do far more abundantly than all we can ask, or I love this, think or imagine according to his power that's at work within us. Or, or John Newton did it, said it this way, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. You can bring your big and bold requests to this God because you can know this God and your requests are never going to outdistance His goodness. Your requests are never going to outpace His love, never going to outstrip His power. He abounds in love and mercy, David says. He can give deliverance and He can be present in the midst of all that's going on. And he's also this God who knows exactly the details of what's going on. And David counts on that too. Verse 19, he says, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity. There was none and for comforters, but I, I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. One commentator says that there are a few words, a few wounds as deep as those expressed in the words reproach, shame, dishonor. Well, that's important to remember is we don't maybe feel the sting of those quite the same way that, that David probably would have originally. Few wounds as deep as those that he's talking about there, especially in the midst of this Old Testament community where he, David, is the king of the people of God, Israel. He's, he's God's anointed man over God's anointed people, and he's on the receiving end of all of this atrocities that are directed at him as the king. And it has left him brokenhearted and despairing. And he says, God, you know this situation. The opposition to David has been merciless. He's been mocked. 
He's been mistreated. They've even said, like, here's some food, right, under the guise of food, and offered him something that was poison. Like, he is the object of this treatment. And he puts all of these, these realities, all of this situation, both what's going on internally and externally, in front of the Lord, and he wants the Lord to see these things, as he knows the Lord sees these things, and he wants to draw the Lord's help. God, deliver me, be present with me. And the difficulty of his situation, the mistreatment, the depths of his wounds, call for something stronger in David. So we've gone from, from this growing clarity, verses 13 through 21, to now addressing these enemies in verses 22 through 28. Here's what he says. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation and let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you've wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. David prays for God's judgment in his enemies. Life. And, and notice how he hits different categories here. Their personal life, their, their health, their future. And, and these words are scorching words toward his enemies, aren't they? But they fit David's description of what has happened to him. There, there's a, a connection with those. He's been hit at his personal life, his health. They tried to poison him, his future. They want to cut him down, seek his demise. And he's basically saying, the things that they have directed at me, may it just fall on them. Now, here's what he doesn't do here. He's still praying. Let's remember that. He, he's not acting. He's praying. But what he does do is he does call on God to act and act in a decisive way, clearly, in these verses. His trust then, as he doesn't act but prays and, and trusts God to act, his, his trust is in God and his character and in his justice. It's not in his own justice. It's not in his own actions. It's in God's justice. And as we hear these words, and they sound really scorching, let's also remember the context. This is David, who's facing the utter mistreatment, injustice of all these enemies that are coming out to him, and he says multiple times, without cause, unrighteously, and he draws from that prayers to God based on God's character. He, he looks at the people around him, and he says, these are the Psalm 2 people. Remember in Psalm 2, the nations are raging. They're, they're, they're trying to take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, which would be his king. And they're raging here against the Lord and against his anointed King David with all kinds of wicked acts. And he sees himself, I think, rightly in that vein. There's real mistreatment here, real pain, real destruction, and David prays about all that stuff and in all that stuff, all based on God's character. He's asking him to answer and to deliver and to save and to be with him in the midst of all this based on what? God's abounding love, abounding mercy. And so when David prays, verses 20 through to 28... It's not as if here is a man who, who refuses to leave room for his enemies to repent and join him. He is saying they are Psalm 2 people. They are raging against the Lord and his anointed, and that ought not be. And there's some implied room in there, I think, for repentance. He is speaking of a God who is abounding in love and mercy. David is not neglected to point out that he also needs that mercy. Right? He confessed his own sin. He needs that. He's been a man who's not shown himself unwilling to show mercy to his enemies. Think of Mephibosheth and Absalom and how he mourns over him and some of his army gets mad. Like, why are you mad about that? He was a traitor, right? And he's still sad about it. Like, he's shown himself with a compassionate heart, one who's willing to forgive and walking free. Even as Saul multiple times and Saul, they're like, strike him down. He's like, I'm not doing that. We're, we're going to let the Lord act in this. So he's not shown himself as one who's unwilling to show mercy to his enemies. But without repentance... Without them bowing before the Lord and his anointed, Psalm 2, he calls for the Lord to visit upon those enemies what he said he would visit upon those enemies in Psalm 2. Visit them with justice. These kinds of prayers, verse 22 through 28, is also in line with God's character. David knows God is abounding in love. In other words, this is a God who, when he looks at this, his people in this situation and evil and wickedness in the world, he's not a God who's disinterested or uninterested. And because that's true, that he's abounding in love, he's not disinterested, he's not uninterested, he can't be a God that 
is a God without hatred toward evil. Right? We, we've said this over and over again. It, it matters. You, you can't love another without hating what would destroy them. God couldn't be abounding in love and not hate what would destroy those he's created. Evil, wickedness, sin. So here's David praying to this God who he knows hates evil, hates wickedness. He knows God's love for his people, and because he knows God's love and abounding in his own life, he also knows that he hates evil. And the things that are happening to him, he calls evil. And David prays from that very reality. Verses 22 through 28 come out of that reality. It's his knowledge of the love of God that lead him to say, take care of my enemies. That's what he does. To not pray, God, take care of my enemies, is to think maybe perhaps God is uninterested, maybe perhaps that God is morally neutral, or maybe he's unjust. And God is none of those things. He's not disinterested, he's not uninterested, he's not morally neutral, he is holy, and he's not unjust. He is holy, 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 and his justice is holy. And David knows God's justice and what God's justice does on the earth. When God exacts his justice, what it promotes on the world is good. And what it does is it restrains evil. Often God's justice, if you were to search it out in the scripture, it is a means that God uses to warn people and bring about maybe even their own repentance. To show them the errors of their way that they might turn. Often God's justice works in that exact way. Look at Psalm 2 for just a second. Psalm 2, verse 9. You shall break them, these nations that are raging, with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And what's the takeaway from that? This is what's going to happen if they stay in this way. But here's what we are told. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. Serve the Lord. Like there's the room right there. You know this is going to happen. He's going to break you. Turn. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, submit wholly to Him, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled, and blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Like, you can get away from His wrath by taking refuge in Him. That's the invitation of, according to the justice of God, and we should know the same. Paul, in, in Romans chapter 11, he uses, he references this, these verses in Psalm 69, in, in chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, and he's speaking of Israel and how they've received the judgment of the Lord because of their unbelief, because of their lack of repentance, because of their lack of faith. They've rejected Jesus. They've rejected their God. And because of that, they've, they're facing the judgment of God. Remember, he, he has cut them off. But you also need to remember the end of that. that in 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 23, it's not the end of the story. Part of their judgment has been to show some grace and mercy to the Gentiles. We know that. So there's justice working to promote faith and repentance and good. And even then, he says in verse 23, even if they, they don't continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. So yeah, they've been cut off, but part of their cutting off was to, to make them move in jealousy towards the Gentiles and be pulled right back in. Like That's part of God's justice in the world. Or in Revelation chapter 16, Similar language, 16 verse 1 talks about poured out indignation, poured out wrath, like shared words with Psalm 69 here. And what's the idea with, with describing these things in Revelation 16, these things that will come to pass, so that readers, when they hear them, will, will be changed by them, be shaped by them, be warned by them, move in repentance based on them, and faith based on those things. And so each one of those texts, we, each of them has room for repentance based upon God's justice, based upon God's judgment, based upon, upon God's wrath. It, it is to say, get in line with the Lord and His anointed, or that Lord and His anointed are going to break you. That's always what he's been saying. And so David, when he prays these things in verses 23 to 28, is not praying wrongly, nor do God's people pray wrongly when they pray like this with real sin and real enemies in the world. I think part of what we think is so scorching in these verses is that we are so separate from this kind of context. Uh, one author, he, he is, is Miroslav Volf, if you know this name, 
He is a Croatian. He grew up in the Balkans, which were known for, for just all kinds of atrocities and, and violence. And he, was, he grew up in this context. He delivered papers and lectures and wrote based on things that happened in this context and for people in this context. And, and he just asked us to imagine. Imagine a war zone. So here's what he says. But in this war zone, imagine among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. He says, actually, when he was writing this, he says the, the origins of this paper were, were for that very context, written in that context. This is not make-believe. Like, he's asking us to imagine it because we're not there, but he's saying this is not make-believe. He goes on to say, like, what would we say about God's judgment in that place? But let's go on to ask this. How would we suggest God's people pray in that situation? If we flinch at imprecatory prayers, prayers for curses upon God's enemies, it's possible and probably likely that we know so little of that context. And he suggests that probably the reason that that seems so distant is because we've lived a quiet, easy life in the suburbs. And not only do we not know little of Wolf's context or the Balkans maybe, but, but just even David's original context. Or what's happening here is extreme and intense upon God and upon God's people. So if we flinch, it's likely that we have little knowledge of their original context. And yet, what do we do with these verses? Because in reality, our context is different. And I'm just saying that we have a quiet, easy life, although that may be true. Our context is different in another way. Right? We have to look at verses 23 through 28 and other imprecatory prayers that are in the Psalms. And there are many across the Psalms. We have to look at them through the lens of the gospel. Now we're on the other side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. We have to look at them through the lens of the cross and through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is the one who came and he taught us to pray for our enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He himself is the one who, when he was being murdered, prays for forgiveness of those who are murdering him. And so at least in some, some ways we need to know that that no matter what enemies we're thinking of and in curses we want to draw down on them, we need to know this, that in Jesus' sacrifice, there is room for the worst to repent and be forgiven. And we should pray for it. We should ask God, have mercy upon these people. Right? There's a long-standing, like we could go to lots of examples of this happening. Stephen would be one. <laughs> Forgive them. Pray for God's mercy. But what else are we to do with verses 22 through 28 and other imprecatory psalms? I, I like what Derek Kidner wrote. I have some of this up there that you guys can read along. This is just one commentator I found very helpful on this precise, difficult question. He says, we conclude then that it's not open to us to renounce or ignore the psalmist. So we don't just take these imprecatory prayers and psalms and write them off. We don't eliminate them and say, well, we don't do that anymore. We love our enemies and that's it. Right? We don't do that. We do love our enemies. We are always to do that. But it's more complex than that. He says, but equally it's not open to us to simply occupy the ground on which they stood. We're, we're not in the same place as David was in the psalm. Between our day and theirs, our calling and theirs stands the cross. We are ministers of reconciliation and this is a day of good tidings, of glad news, of gospel. Right? And so to the question, and this is what you probably, is how you... Came for right here. What are, we, what are we to do? Can a Christian use these cries for vengeance as his own? He says the short answer is no. He may, of course, translate them into affirmations of God's judgment. We do know that God is just and he will judge. That we ought to always know that when we're praying, even for mercy upon our enemies, that God's judgment is coming, he will do what is right in the end. He will settle all accounts and make all things right in the end, either in Jesus or in hell, all accounts will be settled and God will be found to be just. So we could translate them into affirmations of God's judgment and into denunciations of the spiritual hosts of wickedness, which are the real enemy. He continues, because we're looking at it, it seems almost primarily from an individual lens, me as an individual and my enemies that are against me as an individual. And here he says this, as for the men of flesh and blood who live as enemies of the cross of Christ or who make themselves our enemies, 
our instructions are to pray not against them, but for them. To turn them from the power of Satan to God. To repay their evil with good. And to choose none of their ways. As men in need, who may yet be rescued, they are to be loved and sought. As men who have injured us, they must be forgiven. But as men to follow or to cultivate, and here the Psalms and the New Testament speak with one voice, he says, they are to be rejected utterly as the principalities and powers behind them. And I thought that was so helpful. So what are we to do with verses 22 through 28 in Psalm 69? Well, we can pray them. Not eliminate them, not not just write them off and erase them as if now these things have no context in our lives anymore. We can't fit them into the Christian life. We don't eliminate them, but we do pray them in light of Jesus, who also taught us how to pray, who also taught us how to live, who also taught us how to move toward our enemies. And so we're not on the same ground as David as he praises, or the other psalmist as he praises. David is the king, the Lord's anointed of God's people, representing God's people as their king, leading them forward. None of us are that, right? Not in the same way. We're not on the same grounds. So we pray these things in light of Jesus. We, we pray if we're not in that context where we could feel the sense of the wanting curses to come down on enemies, we need to think of other contexts. Think about the Lord's servants who are sent all over the world. They're facing torture and death or, or who are being imprisoned unjustly for their faith. I think of those kind of contexts and, and think about these words in light of the personal work of Jesus in those kinds of contexts with the certainty of God's abounding mercy and love and the certainty of God's coming judgment, which in Revelation, as you look at his judgment over and over again, it is always celebrated by everyone who is there. There's no sense that something is wrong when he executes his justice and wrath. It is always celebrated in heaven, praised in heaven. And so we pray. We can pray these things. Not taking justice in our own hands. He doesn't do that. He prays and he takes it to God. But also as people who are not uninterested in what's going on. So if there are enemies out there, to kind of be numb to that is not the right response either. And those are the the different directions we go. Take justice in your own hands or be numb. He says neither of those things. We're not doing either of that. We're not detached from evil and the real enemies that are in the world, that are against the Lord, right? And we know that God isn't either. And so what do we do? We, we pray in light of the personal work of Jesus and we leave it with God to do His will, all the while remaining ready to do whatever He asks us to do. We're ready for whatever He wants us to do. And so with right hearts towards our enemies, with no bitterness in our hearts, but trying to bless those who persecute us, bless and not curse, where the kingdom of God is truly like what we're seeking after first, not our own kingdom, but the kingdom of God is what we're seeking after first. Notice I'm giving lots of qualifiers before I say what's next. With hearts like that, right? hearts that, again, love toward enemies, no bitterness, kingdom of God is first. With love like that, here's what I think we can pray. Father, please forgive them. Have mercy upon them. Grant them repentance. But if not, remembering all the qualifications, if not, may their influence be diminished. May they be brought to nothing. May they not prosper in their wicked deeds. May their money and their power and whatever they have control of in this world run out for your glory. I think that is how we can take verses 23 to 28 and and imprecatory prayers and pray. God, forgive them, grant them repentance, or grant them justice for your glory. So Psalm 69 is a prayer to pray. Verses 22 through 28 are prayers to pray. In light of the person and work of Jesus, we still can pray these words. It gives us, these words gives us a path as sheep among wolves under the good shepherd to pray, to live, to know what to do in the midst of these kind of situations, which are real. So what Psalm 69 does in its very form also does something helpful and instructive. We've moved from, all right, so we're revealing honesty, growing clarity, addressing enemies, to verses... 30 through 36, praising God. Like verses 22 through 29 are prayed, or 28, are prayed and they're left with God and then he moves in verse 30 to praising God. And that in and of itself is instructive. How how do you go from save me, O God, the waters are up to my neck, I'm in muck and mire, my enemies are after me, they're seeking my demise. How do you go from that to verse 30 where he says, I'm going to praise the name of God with a song. I'm going to magnify him with thanksgiving. Like How do you move from that to that? Verse 1 to verse 30. How do you go there? Let's remember what he's been doing this whole time. He's been praying. You go from verse 1 to verse 30 by prayer. 
with some revealing honesty, with some growing clarity about the situation and me in the midst of the situation and God in the midst of the situation, with, with uh, uh, addressing the actual enemies that are out there. You move through prayer to God, all informed by God's character, and those things directed to God can and will, when rightly done, end in verse 30 with praising God. Listen to verse 30 and 31. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or bull with horns and hooves. Like he is saying right there in verse 31 that he knows this God is not just after his outward behavior and outward actions. This is a God who's always cared about the inward person, the heart. He wants their hearts to be offered up in praise. This, he knows this really well from the life of Saul, 1 Samuel 15, Saul doesn't obey the Lord and, and doesn't, you remember what God says to him, obedience is better than sacrifice. Because Saul's like, look, I'm sacrificing these things for you. And he's like, I told you not to do that. You're not, you're missing it, Saul. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Or look back in Psalm 50. Listen to what's, what he says there. Psalm 50 and Psalm 51 both speak to this. Verse 8, it says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. This is speaking from the vantage point of God. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Or in Psalm 51, verse 16, For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. God wants the heart. He's always been after their hearts. And David says, in the midst of what's going on, praying through it, gets to this place where he says, I'm going to praise. Not, not just outwardly, like inwardly, I want that to match. I'm going to praise God from the heart. And as the hearts of God's people bring this kind of sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and they start praising him in the midst of all of life's circumstances, this is what happens. Verse 32 and 33 give us kind of some of the results. The humble see it. And they're glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. In the midst of all that's going on, when they see the Lord's anointed, the king or his faithful people, in the midst of their drowning, call out to God and then start praising God. All of a sudden, it starts drawing others in to look at what's going on here and they can start rejoicing too because they know something is going on here. God is in the midst of this. He's hearing the cries of his people. And so they're encouraged by these things too. And because that's happening, now all of a sudden we're going to call everybody in on this. And that's where he goes. Let's, let's call everybody to worship. Verse 34. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. David, what he's done in the, in the midst of this psalm is he's taken his drowning to the Lord. And what has happened in the end? In the end, it has ended in praise as he recalls God's purposes. What are God's purposes? He says he purposes that all things, that the heavens and the earth that are mine, Psalm 50, uh, Psalm 24, we could go to other places, that are his. He wants them all to work in unison, praising and magnifying God. Let everything praise him. All of creation praise him. That was its intent and purpose from the beginning. He's recalling these things. He knows that his purpose is for his people to be delivered. He wants to rescue them and he wants to make them a place that's safe where he can dwell in their midst where they will be his people and he will be their God. And so he's making this dwelling in the city of God, the place where God himself dwells in the midst of his people. And he wants there his people to be prospering. Uh, and according to these verses, you hear this like continual prospering. They're going to have generations. And so there's this prospering that's going on kind of perpetually is what's implied. And David, he lands there, drowning to praising. He took it all to the Lord, and, and he takes his drowning to praising. How do you do that? Well, if we want to do that, if we want to move from drowning to praising, we have to look not just at our circumstances. You never get any hint that anything has changed. The end of Psalm 69 doesn't say the enemies are gone. God struck them down. The flood shifted to, from me to them. None of that. He didn't say I figured my way out. None of that. He stops looking at his circumstances and his situation. He starts praising God because he knows God's purposes. He took his drowning to God and he starts praising because he knows God's purposes. Nothing has changed and David praises. Why? Because he took his drowning to this God 
with this revealing honesty, this growing clarity, addressing his enemies, and finally with praising God as he recalls his purposes. As you look at these last few words, verse 34 through 36, think of how the, the generation since David's time could have read and prayed and sung those words together. They know what it was like to be prisoners, don't they? And then they know what it is to take a land and have possession of it. They know what it's like to be a people who are exiled, servants of another, and then to be brought back and to be able to serve the Lord as they were called. And they could have said these things. Like we're thinking exile and post-exile. They all could have picked up these same words across history. But all the while, even when they came back from exile, they're kind of looking around like, temple used to be better. Not sure where the king's at. Doesn't seem to be taking up the throne here, God. Oh no, now the Greeks, now, the Rome, now, now we're ruled. Like They're always, if they're praying this prayer rightly, looking ahead, looking ahead, looking forward. So that when we come to this, in whatever drowning we might feel, sickness, job, kids, all kinds of worldly troubles, we get to take this and we get to remember God's purposes. And we get to remember God's purposes with a growing clarity. So that when we sing things like, when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Or when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. We, we get to do that with a growing sense of clarity. Because David, he took his drowning to God in prayer and he moved to praising because he understood who God was, he understood his purposes, but he only understood those and prayed those things as a foreshadow of what was to come, of something greater that was to come. You see, if we look at Psalm 69, all through Psalm 69, I almost thought of it as like, you can see the ghost of Jesus, although that's not right theology, right? But like, the ghost of Jesus walking through here. You, you see this, this psalm whispering his name in almost every corner. It is one of the, I, I heard it was, depends on how you count, the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It is one of the most quoted in the New Testament. And in Psalm 69, all through this, we see something greater because we have more that's been revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus. And look back at these words in Psalm 69 with me. Now, you think he knew the, the words of verses 1 through 3 when he's in Gethsemane and he says, I'm overwhelmed? You think he knew verse 4? More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Like, he was a, a man who was despised. The, both people of high regard and the people that were drunkards in the tavern, they hated him. He knew rejection. He, he knew verse 7, right? I'm living for your sake, and they're after me. I'm giving myself to you, and they hate me. Or verse 9, right? Jesus comes in and he clears the temple because they've made it into a house of trade, a marketplace, rather than a place of worship and prayer. And his zeal for the house brought him in there with, with some righteous anger to overthrow some tables, to make a whip, and drive people out of that place. Why? Because verse 9, zeal for that house had consumed him, Ultimately, that's found in Jesus. But he kept praying, verse 13, in the midst of all that's going on, he kept praying, my prayers to you at an acceptable time. He kept saying, God, your will be done. My will is to do yours. Amen. Keep doing that, no matter what this cost is. Or verse 19 through 21, these, this reproach, this being isolated and estranged from the people that are most close to him, he knows that. Shame and dishonor, he knows that. Reproaches have gone after him, shot right at his heart. He looked for pity and there was none. Comforters, there were none. And instead of good food, they gave him poison. Do you remember when the, he was thirsty on the cross and they gave him sour wine to drink? And in the midst of that, what does he pray? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we know that he prayed that prayer, and moments later he died. But Jesus' story ends in praise too. Because though he drowned in death, the rivers of sorrow couldn't overflow for long as death could not hold it. And in Jesus is where we see this clarity of the purposes of God. Amen. In Jesus, the purposes of God find their ultimate fulfillment as he starts making all things right in heaven and on earth. In Jesus, we see the purposes of God find their ultimate fulfillment as he starts creating a new people that are a people now found in him 
who are a people who are not just fit for an earthly city, an earthly Zion, but are fit and made ready for a heavenly Zion, a heavenly city. And he says, I'll show you the way to get there. In fact, I am the way to get there. And you will dwell there with me if you trust in me. And you will not just dwell there temporarily until the next great enemy comes along. You will dwell there eternally because there will be no more enemy. It will be put away, finally and fully. So it is no exaggeration to say that if you trust in Jesus, all of your drowning will end in praising. It will always end in praising. No matter how long the drowning persists, no matter how heavy it feels, no matter how wicked it, of source it comes from, all of your drowning in Christ will end in praising. And because that's true, we respond to Jesus with our faith, trust, and obedience. He told us, when you get together, you need to take a meal. And when you take this meal, what you're doing is you're remembering what I've done. You're remembering who I am, that I am the Son of God. And you're remembering that I came to live a life that you couldn't live, and that I died a death that you deserve to die, but I took it on your behalf as your sacrifice, as your atoning sacrifice. But you also take it, and every time you take it, make sure you remember that I'm coming back. And so we take a meal together in response to the person work of Jesus that says in its very essence all that's going on down here is going to end in praise because he's coming back. Let's pray and prepare for that meal. Please pray with us. God, we want to align our hearts with the reality of what you have revealed to us in Scripture. Especially today, we confess that often our um, problems, fears, and anxieties are due to us creating our own kingdoms. And David is very open about that. But also, God, our own realities, you will lovingly correct and heal us if we bow low and confess that we are Poor rulers, save us, God. We confess a lot of times we save ourselves, we think, through manipulating our circumstances that we have power over. And David says, no, save us, God. Help us move Godward when we are falsely accused or when our sin is causing our pain Deliver us from ourselves. Like Dylan preached, our self-pity that we can so easily explain away with whatever the buzzword is of the day. Lord of hosts, we pray as David prayed. We praise you for giving us what we need and not what we want. We praise you that you don't smooth the path for us to make it easier for us, but you give us yourself for the journey. Because you're a wise father to us children. We praise you that there is not a pit, that your love is not deeper still, and that you abound in love and mercy. And because you abound in love and mercy, God, you are just. So break our enemies and graft them in. God, we're not blind to know or to think that some in here are still your enemy. So break us and graft us in. We ask you for your forgiveness for where we have failed to pray for forgiveness of our enemies or rivals or even political adversaries. Fix and renew our hearts, God, so that our sacrifices are a broken and contrite heart. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this beautiful picture of his songbook that he would have been singing in the shadows we see throughout that have now been fully revealed in our time. Thank you for this meal that we can partake in with our brothers and sisters. And I can't wait for the day when we do that with you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.